Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicecape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of Voicegate. Yeah, for the first time in my career, there was an acknowledgement that there was a housing crisis. This was prior to COVID. And, and why have we got the nine to five? It's bonkers. The nine to five comes from 1926 and Henry Ford, and he needed to control when his workers were joining the production line to make the production of the Model T more efficient. You know, if Amazon only delivered to me between half nine and half four, I'd be well acted off. Um, I, you know, if Morrison's didn't enable me to have my own shopping delivered at eight o'clock at night, I'd be, I'd be going somewhere else. Today's guest on the Social Housing Podcast is Nick Atkin, Chief Executive of Yorkshire Housing. He's been recognised consistently over the years as one of the top 25 most influential people in the social housing sector. And I am really pleased that he has taken the time to join us. Okay, Nick. Um, as a self-proclaimed agent for change and a kind of a champion of all things future, I'm going to be a bit ironic here now and ask you to look back and give me a view of the social housing sector up to what I think you'll agree with me, I'm calling one month BC. So about January 2020. <laughs> so a bit of a view of the world before then. Um, wow, blimey, doesn't it, doesn't it feel like a completely different time? I think... Um, I think it was it was a world that was changing, probably not as quickly as it needed to. Um, I think they, um, I think the sleeping giant had one eye open and was a bit like my dog really was starting to give me that cursory glance of, um, I'm thinking about sort of getting up and moving around a bit faster than than I have been for for the last few few uh, hours, um, and I, and I think. I think the housing world was starting to wake up to some of the opportunities that that existed, but probably didn't have enough of a burning platform for that to, to move at the pace that um, it needed to. Um, so that would probably be my start of 10. I think there were some really good examples of people who were pushing the boundary. And then I think there were others who were probably a little bit comfortable where things were at and things were plodding along quite neatly and quite nicely. The housing market was doing okay. The economy was doing okay. Um, satisfaction levels were generally okay. You know, it was a pretty, pretty safe and comfortable place to be. Yeah, I think when we've spoken in the past, Nick, I always, I've always been um, perplexed, shall I say, by the amount of talk about transformation in a sector which visibly hasn't really changed that much. And that, that's always been one of my frustrations. And, and but I think you've nailed it on the head. There's not really. There's no fires. There's no fires need putting out. It's been all right and I wonder something that I've been thinking about after I read the white paper and it talked about how little how few new houses have been built by the local authorities over the last sort of nine ten years which coincided with an article in the Guardian last week or the week before which talked about again how few houses have been built in 2020 and looking at it from a 
if you like a private sector, normal business perspective, you've kind of got a business with massive demand, limited supply, you're bound to get a bit complacent. What do you think of that? Think that's prevalent? Uh, I I think there was, I think the tide was changing slightly in that, you know, for the first time in my career, there was an acknowledgement that there was a housing crisis. This was prior to COVID. And I think, you know, to have all the main parties all saying exactly the same thing on it did make you go, well, right, okay, there is there is a need to do something here. And I think I think the housing sector falls into two camps, really. I think there were those that, um, like ourselves, I would argue, who, who stood up to the, the plate on that and went, well, actually, we're going to max the credit out almost to the max. We took a regulatory regrade on our financial viability in the knowledge that that would happen because we have an ambition uh, to build 8,000 new homes as part of our business strategy. So we said at the time of a housing crisis, we should be absolutely doing everything we can. And that's why we um, have, have those plans to grow by 45%. Um, 18,000 homes at the moment had another 8,000 the maths do themselves. Um, despite being a chief exec, I can now, now and again do the maths. Only <laughs> because I've rehearsed that so often. Um, but I, I think the, I think the, I think the, what's changed since COVID is that all of us have, have realised more than ever the importance of, of home and a good quality home. And I well, think I what gonna, it, uh, sorry, on, sorry, sorry to yeah. cut in there, Nick, because I, that was a nice little segue into you know I, I did want to just get your your view on. BC, if you like, right. before COVID. So, right, so sorry, I didn't finish that. So there were some that were like us who were going, you know what, there's a housing crisis, we need to do a lot, put our full weight behind that and our resources. And I think there were others who were probably dabbling a little bit, doing a little bit, but probably could have done more and were almost sort of saving something in the bank for a rainy day. And I think at the point of a, my personal view is at the point of a housing crisis, you know, how much more rain, how much harder does the rain have to fall before you prepare to do something? And I've also got, you know, a bit of a vested interest in them, quite honest with you. You know, I've got three kids. I need to get rid of them. You know, they need <laughs> they need to get out of my house and go and live somewhere else. So, um, you know, I need to... Some least, are affordable. Uh, yeah, yeah, I need some affordable. Yeah, absolutely, because I know who's paying for it. So I think, I think there were two camps. I think there were those that were really, really pushing the boundaries and really going for it. And I think, in fairness, I have to say, people like Homes England were really different in their approach in terms of enabling that to happen, giving me and the board at Yorkshire Housing the confidence to do things and have that ambition that we wouldn't have had before. Um, so I think the way that funding was, was set up, it was long term, but also probably the most important thing for us was flexibility in how that was used and tenures and all that sort of thing. So I think, I think in BC world, um, I think there were, there were two camps and I think, you know, things, things were, were either full on or people were dabbling a little bit. Okay. Moving on then thinking about uh, not belittling the, the public health impact of COVID because that's obviously writ large across everybody's mind, but, COVID as a catalyst for change within social housing, for it or against it, what do you think? It's put aside, as you say, you know, the, the sort of dreadful public health, whether that be physical or mental health impacts. But I think, I, I think we're living through a period in time that my kids, grandchildren and their, their future generations will look back on, they'll study this period we're in at the moment and go, wow, can you imagine what that must have been like? 
to have that massive accelerant of, of how people live their lives, how people work, where people live, all those sorts of things. And that's what we're living through at the moment. And, and, I, and I keep trying to stop when I'm feeling grumpy about, you know, being behind the camera for 14 hours a day. I do try and stop myself and pinch, pinch myself and say, you're living through a unique period in history. A bit like when the internet was, was first came live. And, you know, I talk to my kids about the internet and they go, what? There was, there was a time before the internet. Well, what did you do? And it's like, well, yeah, other things. Um, but, but unlike the internet, which came in over a, several years, you know, in the space of probably the, four, the first four weeks of lockdown accelerated, um, certainly Yorkshire housing, forward to where we had planned to be in three years' time. So we moved forward in four weeks, three years. And I don't think that's dissimilar for many, many businesses, not just housing organisations, but for many businesses. Unfortunately, I think for, for some retailers, it's accelerated their demise. Um, I think yeah. there were several that were already floundering and you did look at and you think, I won't be buying anybody a gift voucher for them this Christmas. That was pre-COVID. <laughs> now you're definitely not going to be. Um, but also, I, I, I also think it's, it's revolutionised sort of the way that um, we think about work and what we do and how we do it. Or, and, and I think the, 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 the real sort of big thing that has changed is that, you know, you talked before about um, transformation and, and, you know, all those, those poor devils in every organisation called directors of transformation, you know, we're given this job and arguably if they do their job well, they should be out of a job in three years if you think about it. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but actually, you know, they were often a lone voice and, and all the things they wanted to do, everybody else in the business was saying, you can't do that. It can't be done. Not possible. And what, what has happened with COVID and lockdown has that all the things that people said couldn't be done overnight have become a reality and become the norm. And it's fascinating to see how we have all shifted in our mindsets, so both psychologically, but also in terms of how businesses are operating and, and yeah. delivering. Um, and, and, you know, it's driven a coaching horses through paper-based systems, driven a coaching horses through people who, you know, said you could never, for example, and I'm picking on them probably unfairly, but you could never get a finance team to work from home. Well, you know what? They have been since the 23rd of March. Um, and, and it's all those elements, really, that I just think are, are fascinating to sort of um, be part of. And sometimes yeah. you do have to pinch yourself and remember that you're in the middle of this, yes, this dreadful public health crisis, but actually as, a, as an agent for change and, and real transformation, it's mind-boggling when you think where we were just, what, eight months ago and where we are now? It, it, it frazzles my brain when I think about some of the things that have completely changed in my life. And, and, you know, if we're going to be like this till Easter, what's interesting is that psychological shift, there'll be no going back for many people. No. That, you know, because over anything over a year, really, that becomes the norm for people. And people are like, well, you know, why would I go back in time? Why would I go back yeah. to, to living my life or to working in a way that I've moved on from? Yeah. Well, I think I agree with you there, Nick, because... It's often been talked about. I mean, right now, all of the um, all of the news is about vaccines and getting out of lockdown and getting back to you know normal, whatever normal is. But I'm I'm hopeful that 
some of the real valuable things that have come out of the experience, because it hasn't all been bad, as you said, we, we hold on to, and that, that genie doesn't, they don't try and put that genie back in the bottle. I remember something you said when I last spoke to you, uh, and it stuck in my mind, was that, that work, you know, you talked about the future of work, and that's an interesting thing for, all, for everybody, but I'm interested if your views for social landlords in particular, but this notion that work is something we do, it's not somewhere we go. I love that one. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's probably the biggest thing that's come out of all of this. I think that, you know, we've, we've all had to balance, I mean, particularly in the first lockdown, you know, I, I, and I, I just massive respect to anybody did homeschooling. You know, how on yeah. earth do we do that and, you know, hold down it? But what that did do was just, again, drove a coach and horses through the nine to five. And, and why have we got the nine to five? It's bonkers. The nine to five was, well, was if you take it back, was comes from 1926 and Henry Ford, and he needed to control when his workers uh, were joining the production line to make his his the production of the Model T more effect, more efficient. And for some reason, we've we've followed this mantra, <laughs> and and it's that whole thing about well. As humans, we don't operate at our optimum no. between nine and five. I'm, a, I'm an early morning person, so unfortunately we're recording this in the afternoon, so <laughs> I'm on a massive downward spiral at the moment. You're not getting the best out of me. But I know that some of my colleagues, you know, really only start to function around mid-afternoon onwards because they're night owls, naturally. So why then do I have a half meeting with somebody who I know isn't at the, working at their best or their optimum? But then I think we're probably looking at this down the wrong lens because we're looking at it from a from an employee and employer point of view. For me, the big opportunity out of all of this is to completely, I suppose, transform truly the customer offer. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that if you look at what our core offer is really, um, a, a, if we were in the private sector, we'd call an estate agent. And and if we if we operated as we do now as a sector, we'd have gone out of business. 10 to 15 years ago you know how many people offer viewings of of properties that they're trying to let on a saturday or a sunday or a late evening or an early morning you know we know a number of our customers work shifts they might be on um zero contract zero hour contracts you know so we're then expecting them to take time off sometimes unpaid to look at a property that we're trying to let to them and it's bizarre as a process so actually what we can do as part of all of this, and certainly what we at Yorkshire Housing are really pushing on, is how do we, yes, provide a much better employee offer, so much more flexibility around how you work, when you work, but geared and designed around a much enhanced customer offer. So, you know, the fact that we're able to, to offer our services across a much more diverse and a much wider sort of timeline yeah than the the traditional sort of you know let's face it it's a bit half nine to half four-ish in terms of some of the, the sort of most services that we offer and you know if amazon only delivered to me between half nine and half four i'd be well act off um I, you know if morrison's didn't enable me to have my own shopping delivered at eight o'clock at night i'd be i'd be going somewhere else we seem to think sometimes that our customers live in a parallel universe and they don't and i think the other thing that's come out of the last eight months is that our customers' expectations, quite rightly, will have shifted. They will have seen how we have responded and how we've dealt with things in a much more customer-focused way. 
providing intensive support for those people who really need it, being more proactive about contacting people who we've probably not really had an ongoing dialogue with or relationship with. And they'll, they'll quite rightly expect more of that. And I think that's also cemented by, by the government's white paper that yeah. was recently published, which again, sort of reinforces the importance of, I suppose, I wouldn't say resetting the relationship, but certainly uh, changing the relationship between landlord and uh, landlord and its customers. So um, I think there's a there's a there's a huge opportunity that comes out of this for us to to take our our service offer from one which is more akin to um, how if you were if you were a car dealer, um, you know more about how you can buy something like say a Tesla versus how you bought a Ford Escort in 1985. Brilliant. In, in terms of the stuff that you're doing at Yorkshire Housing, the initiatives you've taken as a consequence, maybe they were already, as you say, already on the burner and um, COVID accelerated them. But I remember when I last spoke to you, you were talking about the, the home hub Rome model. And I thought that sort of looked quite interesting to me. It's surely something that other landlords would, would like to hear about at least and possibly emulate. So I wondered if you could just sort of speak to that a little bit, Nick. Yeah, and, and our thinking on this is still emerging, but we, we, we know at the moment, as we sit here in, in you know, at the end of November in, in 2020, that, you know, we, we have quite a stark choice. It's either work from home, or if you really, really need to, and have got a good reason that there's an office base, but actually for most people, there's only one choice, which is that you work from home. We need to get past that and and think about life post COVID, particularly as now, um, as of today, there are three uh, realistic vaccine options that are coming down the line and the government are talking about life starting to get back to normal by Easter 2021. So in terms of planning for that, we're starting to think, well, actually, the way that, um, how do we capitalise and how do we seal in the changes in terms of how uh, our people are now want to work? So we've um, done run workshops with um, small workshops, but it's included um, over a quarter of all of our colleagues in wow. total. So we've got real sort of qualitative data on what it is our colleagues want, but also in terms of transforming our services to, to deliver, you know, not just, a, not just a good, but a great customer experience. That's what we want. The, for us, the way that you do that is to, is to change the way and, and remove the shackles. And what were the barriers to that happening? Um, it was very much around an office base uh, with banks of desks akin to, you know, a battery chicken farm uh, where people sat, um, they banged away on a keyboard for eight hours a day and paid to commute, carbon footprint of all of that, as well as, um, you know, not having the flexibility that they needed to manage certain things in their lives. Our approach has shifted and what we now want to move to and what we are moving to is, a, is three options that are blended so it's not one of, it's a blend of three and they are a hub. So it's about um, providing exciting, vibrant, thought-provoking space where people can come together in a, in a safe way initially, but come together um, and collaborate, whether that's just socially or if it's for a purpose around a project or whatever. And, and you know, I'd, I'd lay down the challenge and you might be, you might be a much better person than me, but I have never, ever, ever in my entire career had a good idea sat in a glass box called a meeting room. 
And yet, for some reason, we seem to think that we get people together in a glass box of a meeting room uh, and a flip chart, and suddenly there's going to be, we're going to change the world. <laughs> doesn't work like that. You know, you need that, that you need something different that, that energizes you and, and excites yeah. you. So those hubs will be locally based. They will vary. Some of them will be, might be things that we own. Some of them might be things that we, we rent from others. We might rent space by the hour, the day, the week, the month, whatever. But that has the benefit of reducing the um, the carbon footprint of the business and also the costs for our people in terms of traveling around. So that's the, the hub model. The second is home. And we all know that one of the benefits when you're not on Teams and Zoom calls is that when you are at home, generally, when we're speaking to, as I say, a quarter of our colleagues, the vast majority have said, I've never been as productive. You know, I'm, I'm focused, I get stuff done, I'm able to concentrate and focus, and, and I'm far more um, effective, but I don't want to do it five days a week. But it is a good way of having it as an option, from yeah. perhaps one, two days a week, something like that. And then the final one, so that's, that's hub, home, and then the final one is Rome. And this is the fact that, you know, Yorkshire is God's own country, as we all know, um, but it's also um, a very diverse and a very large area. So Yorkshire is 100 miles north to south, 100 miles east to west, and it's got a full range. It's got everything from rural housing right through to, you know, your, your, your sort of very lively inner city sort of environment. And, and as such, our people um, are in different places at different times. And actually, our, our ethos is very much around just enabling people to be able to work anywhere. And uh, at, at any time, you could almost, you know, for those of a certain age, would almost call it a martini effect. So, you know, anytime, any place, anywhere. And, and that, that is about the, the sort of Rome mentality. And, and I think this not only offers a great opportunity in terms of, uh, you know, really extending the customer offer, but for me, I think if you fast forward two years, so we're sat, we're, let's say we're sat at the start of 2023 and we're looking to recruit, but also retain really good people. I think people will increasingly look at the employee offering in terms of flexibility and use that probably equal to pay as a reason why they would either stay or leave or take up an offer of, of employment or not. Um, so I think this is a this is going to be a huge factor for many of us, not only in recruiting really talented people, but also retaining really talented people as well. So uh, for me, there are lots and lots of benefits to, to, to that flexible approach. I can see that, Nick, as well. Um, obviously, being an employer myself, I can see that differentiator that it would offer because we've been... Like yourself, we've been through every flavour. We Everybody was working from home straight away at the beginning of March. Then when the lockdown was supposedly finished, we had social distancing in our offices. So not everybody in together, but a few bodies coming in. And that was great because everybody had missed that collaboration and interaction. Then you get another lockdown. We're back down to the, the most skeleton of skeleton staff. So, But having gone through that journey... I like the flexibility, you, you know, you're right. You get over all of those old anxieties of, is anybody actually doing any work? To then realizing, yeah, yeah. people are actually more productive. <laughs> but you can understand, you know, there, there are, there will be chief execs out there running organizations with hundreds of people like yourself going, how do I keep a tab on everybody? And it's, uh, it is a, a daunting prospect, but at the same time, it's the new world order. It, it's, it's obviously the way things are going. I'm wondering from your perspective, obviously, VoiceScape, we're a technology business, and I'm interested, 
How big a role do you see technology playing in this new world order of home roam and hope and everything else that we're talking about? Yeah, so, so I think that the thing that's come out of this is that um, very much technology and, and, and the digital infrastructure is an enabler. Yeah. Um, and it's just become so important. So, you know, let me give you an example. Yeah. What happens if your internet goes down at home? <laughs> you know, it used to be in, in the BC world, yeah. you know, my kids had appeared and it was like the end of the world, you know, because <laughs> whatever online game they're on has ended. Um, and, you know, it was like, go out into the street, dad, and put two wires together, you know, dig up the street, put two <laughs> wires together and get us back online. But it's interesting in, in our world now, if if that if that internet connectivity drops, you're suddenly like, right, okay, well, what happens now? I need to get back. I can't communicate with people, and then you suddenly realise, oh, I've got this thing called a phone. Um, I can actually ring somebody. I mean, I can't remember. Don't worry, I can't remember the last time I had a telephone conversation with somebody. It's just a bizarre concept, isn't it? Now, but I think the whole sort of if you think about the hub, home, and Rome, basically, you should be able to work from from a bag. Um, yeah. Everything that you need should be should be portable, um, and and I think to the, the, the infrastructure needs to be enabled to do that, so that people are able to access documents. Yeah, for example, all of us have have managed to find a way of um, of dealing with incoming and outgoing uh, post. You know, and we'd already we fortunately we were already well down the road on that. So we've got external fulfilment for for outgoing letters. So they just get sort of dealt with in in a in a, a centralized function that we pay for somewhere else by another company but also likewise incoming posts gets gets scanned and dealt with as well so i think we've i think we've rethought through and i think there's an increased reliance upon upon digital uh platforms and and hardware as well as a way of, of being absolutely crucial to to what you do uh, whether that's through giving people the right homeworking kits so that they're able to, to to do what you need them to do in a comfortable and safe way, but also a very productive way, but also when they're on the road to enable them to, to be able to to do what you need them to do, either in a yeah. in an environment that switches between online and offline seamlessly, but without the user knowing, so that you know if there is a drop in connectivity they're still able to do things. And then as the connectivity hooks back up seamlessly in the background, that all, all gets dealt with. So I, I just think we have, um, I think even for, for those those people who probably resisted some of that digital transformation journey, I think we've really gone down that road now. And I think it will accelerate some of the, some of the long overdue innovations ranging from live chat, chatbots, a bit of artificial intelligence in terms of how queries are dealt with because you know, probably 90% of our queries are pretty much around the same 10 things and right through to um, self-serve platforms for customers as well. Because one of the other things that's come out of this this process for us is that our customers have, have told us quite clearly that um, uh, if I was to summarise, uh, we're a hygiene factor, uh, we're a landlord, they just want us to do something when they need us to do it. And the rest of the time, they pretty much want us out of their lives because they've got busy lives and they want to get on with with living those lives so um in some ways making the the processes as easy as possible for customers to to access those services is is, is probably paramount in terms of how we we use that digital technology and those those platforms that underpin it okay it's quite interesting because as a service provider working with social landlords 
I see it from slightly different perspective, same result, but slightly different perspective, which is about triage. Because as you say, you know, you are, it is a hygiene factor. You don't need to treat everybody the same. Not everybody wants to speak to you. That used to be the old school thinking in social housing. It was very patriarchal and, you know, everybody gets the same. Well, not everybody is the same and everybody wants the same. And so from a, an operator's perspective, self-serve, all those things, digital platforms, it's all about triage. Those who are in need, who are vulnerable, who do need a personal touch or whatever it is, we need to get to them. And to get to them, we need to kind of filter the others out as cost-effectively and as nicely as possible. But it's, uh, it's that blended, you know, use that word, it's that blended combined effect to get to the, the root of the problem, isn't it? Which is quite interesting. It, it is. And I, and I think if you, if you look at it from two angles, really, firstly, how do you, you know, we know we're entering a, a period now where there are going to be more people, unfortunately, who are going to need more support, who are going yeah. to be experiencing economic and social uh, situations that they've never faced in their entire lives through no fault of their own. And, it, you know, the challenge for, for, for social landlords like our own is that, you know, how do we respond to that? How do we gear up and how do we um, ensure there are sufficient resources to meet that demand. Uh, and for me, there are only two options. One, you either employ more staff, um, or two, you um, enable a, your transactional activity, which, which, you know, the hygiene factor in our customers' eyes, to be dealt with by a much more automated process, which then frees up the resources that were previously dealing with those transactions and that process to provide that more intensive support for those people who really need it. And, and, you know, it's also more cost effective, although this isn't about cost saving, it's about allocate, reallocating resources. But if you look at the average cost of a self-serve transaction, uh, sorry, of a, um, an in-person transaction, so normally through a, a contact centre type environment, it varies, but it's normally around £15 per transaction. Um, the average cost of an online self-serve transaction varies between 10 and 3p. Yeah. So if you then think about the number of transactions that as a business you deal with each year, if you can move 70, 80, 85, 90% of those to online self-serve, that releases a monetary resource that you're then able to, to, to use for what I would say is much more value-adding activity from a customer perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and that's certainly the, the journey we're on. It's, it's why we've, we've gone down the route that we have in terms of the, the IT platform that we, we, we've got. But it's also the, the, the very very clear state of journey. And that's also why, for example, things like chatbots, et cetera, really helpful because it just enables the customer to flow through the system for the stuff that they just want to get done quick and easy um, without sort of the, the elongated process that you have invariably with a contact centre. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel again, Nick, with what we do, because often when I'm talking to clients about operational efficiencies, you can get some pushback from social landlords on the basis of, again, that patriarchal view of the world. But I have a very clear conscience. I have a very clear view on this. If you waste the fiver trying to engage with somebody who doesn't need to be engaged with, you haven't got that fiver when that vulnerable person who needs you to engage with them is there. So it's finite resources, isn't it? And using them in the best way possible. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've got in our contact centre something like, 40, 40 colleagues, it does vary in numbers, numbers um, sort of from time to time, but but they're so good. I mean, I've spent a lot of time, they are so good with customers, but they're up against it. They, you know, they are always compromised in terms of knowing that they need to probably spend a little bit more time with that individual, 
but knowing, looking at the board and thinking there's 14 calls on hold here and I'm probably the next operator that's going to come free and, and actually shifting that mentality so that, you know, they're not worried about that and they're able to spend, you know, and it's where, it's where KPIs go wrong, isn't it? Because, you know, average time on a call, it, you know, low is seen as good. Well, actually, my view is that shouldn't be the case. A long time on a call with a customer, if it's a customer that needs that support, I think it's a really good thing because, yeah. you know, we're, we're providing that safety net. We're giving them the help and advice and time that they need. Yeah. And, and again, I'd go back to the point that we know there is an iceberg coming. We know there are a number of people who are going to experience, unfortunately, some pretty challenging changes in their lives that they won't have experienced before. And, you know, local authorities just haven't, you know, they're absolutely depleted. They haven't got the resources. Citizens Advice Bureau, they haven't got the resources for many, many of the communities in which we work, we're the last, we're the last organization standing. And for me, we need to stand up, but the only way to, to be able to do that is to free up the resources that, that currently are tied up in, as I said before, you know, process and non-value adding activity. Yeah, I think we could talk about that, the effects of all that all day. What I'll do, bearing in mind time is always a, uh, a scarce resource. I'll just ask you a couple of questions on the uh, on the white paper. You alluded to it earlier. I had a quick read of it. I, I actually spoke to Andy Burnham earlier in the week on the day the white paper came out, and I tried to get him to buy it on a few things, but he wasn't having any of it because he's obviously a very deft politician. But I thought it was quite it's quite funny. It was quite good trying to get him get him on the hook. But the two things that came out of it for me were the emphasis on let's call it better engagement. I think my personal view is that it was a, typically it looked to me like a bit of a stick with which to beat social landlords. And in some instances, maybe there's a call for that. But overall, I thought the two key areas were better engagement. And one thing that I pulled out of it was just the scarcity. We touched on it a little bit earlier. I couldn't get over the fact that local authorities had only built 26,100 new properties between 2010 and 2019. And you said it yourself, you were at that point pre-COVID where you're recognising we're in a housing crisis and then a white paper comes out and it's like, but, you know, what am I missing? Why aren't we building more properties? And again, something that I chatted to you about in the past, this idea about releasing the, the retail sector, you know, high street retail, which is never going to recover to anywhere where it was before how how can we unlock that resource and and you know accelerate as you said talking of accelerants how do we accelerate the house building process what do you think about that what are your thoughts on that wow right okay there's some uh, some big issues in there so i think on the customer engagement side i think that um i think post grandfell a lot of organizations took, took a good long hard look at themselves and probably thought would well, not in terms of compliance and safety, but yeah. just in terms of listening to the customer voice. I think many sort of thought, yeah, we probably need to raise our game there. And I think there has been a positive move in the sector um, yeah. on, over the last sort of three years on that. Um, I think that, um, of course, it varies. Some do it much better than others. Um, but I think what it, it has done, that I think COVID and lockdown in particular, really raised the quality of those conversations and also enabled housing associations 
um, across across the board really to have conversations with and contact with customers that probably never had conversations with or not had conversations for several years so and I think that that that's only a positive sort of uh, uh, outcome from that in terms of in terms of how you build more homes I think um, yes you're right about the local authority stats but in fairness to local authorities until very recently for a number a large number of years the cards have been stacked against them so it's been very clearly a stated aim of several governments of of, of all colors that um, housing associations should be the primary builder of new homes and I think we've done really well in that as a sector as a housing associations and um, it is in peaks and troughs so it depends on the because all the building programs are in in cycles so it depends which year you look at in terms of how good or otherwise that looks but housing associations generally contribute a significant amount of, of new homes that in this country how can we do more i think the the government are trying to do some of that with the changes to uh, planning um, however, I do have reservations about some some elements in the in the planning proposals, most notably the removal of um, Section 106 properties uh, from new build development sites. Um, there are no guarantees how the uh, community uh, infrastructure levy that sits behind it that replaces it, how that would be actually used and whether it would be used for housing or, or other purposes. So I think that risks reducing the supply of housing just yeah. to the point that I think the housing crisis is now much worse than it was pre-COVID. Um, in terms of how we can do that, I think many of the things that are coming through, um, you know, what do you need to build homes? You need long-term certainty on funding, or so that's grant funding, uh, long-term certainty on rents, flexibility on tenures, um, and we have those three now. We have been given those three, so I think that we've got some of the core ingredients there. Um, there are some elements around uh, planning um, that still need to, to, to be changed. And I think there are still some issues about access to land. Um, I think there are um, probably too many people who are, are still sat on, on land assets that has planning permission. And I'd probably like to see, some would argue, a bit more of a draconian approach to that in terms of the, you know, if you've got planning approval on a piece of land and that is about to expire, then, then there should be a much stronger measure against you rather than just uh, uh, letting that, that run out or to be renewed. In terms of um, retail, we know what's going to happen. You can see what's going to happen. So again, if you fast forward to 2023, there are going to be large numbers of retail space and also, I believe, increasingly office space that is yeah, vacant yeah. and that the owners of that space, normally pension funds or investors, will have realised that there's no longer a market for the space in its, in its format, so they'll look to, 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 to offload that, to sell that. I think that's a fantastic opportunity for, for, for housing associations to come in and, and do high-quality conversions of those yeah. spaces. My concern at the moment is that under what's called the permitted development rights, the controls on changing office to resi conversions are minimal, so therefore, we've got a bit of a race to the bottom at the moment. There's a lot right. of private developers who've bought up quite old sort of 1960s, 1970s office space and converted them into, you know, large numbers of, of real low quality, high density flats invariably. And, and I think that actually what we can do is carve out a different offer, which is, a, you know, a, a higher quality, much, much better, but affordable offer 
that keeps our city and town centres vibrant and with people still there, but with a different trade for some yeah. of the other businesses that rely on people going into those areas. Because if you follow our hub home Rome approach, for example, it's, if others go down that route, it's logical to assume that more of that trade will be locally based rather than previously in, in quite big sort of uh, large town and city centre hubs. So I think, the, I, think, I think there are opportunities there but I think there are also some 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 risks in terms of that 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 whole thing around standards. Um, yeah. And I think if you know, if there's one thing that that grandfather's taught us is that you just can't you just cannot afford to skimp on standards. And 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 you know you grandfather's probably brought into sharp focus the you know the the very worst examples of of what happens if if that is the case and. You know, it's just tragic how you know what what happened there i don't want to prejudge the outcome of obviously the ongoing inquiry but certainly you know it it it, it is one of those points i think in in any country's history where um we look back and say that was a pivotal moment when attitudes and mindsets changed okay well on that note nick i'd like to thank you i think i like your vision of the future I'd like to hook up again before then, but certainly in 2023 and see, and see, as you say, exactly where are we up to with those, those issues that we discussed. It's been great having you on. I thank you for all your insights um, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Brilliant. Cheers, Nick. If you're new to the Social Housing Podcast, please subscribe if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or leave a follow if you use Spotify. Also, please remember to leave us any feedback, good, bad or ugly, it can only help serve improvers. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for your time and attention. I appreciate that everybody's busy, but I do hope you learned something from the experience. I certainly did. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Social Housing Podcast. Goodbye.